Our psalm of the day is found in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and infants. You have established strength because of our foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 1 Corinthians 15. We are reading verses 12 through 34 this morning. Listen carefully to God's Word. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, Christ, in, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. You've got to redo that. That was really great news, folks. We're about to talk about it. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
There we go. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for what a word has intersected our lives, that you are the God who raises the dead and that you grant us life in a world to come, life free from sin and from its pollution and from death and all of our guilt. We long for that day, God, and we ask that you would train us and teach our hearts to believe and to hope in these great things that you speak to us this morning. We ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As I completed my coursework at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, it was the spring of 2003, and it was one of the busiest semesters that Melissa and I had ever had. She was pregnant with our firstborn. I was working two part-time jobs and was taking an overload of classes so that we could finish. Melissa had to move because she was eight months pregnant, moving on to nine months. Uh, she went a few days ahead of me as I took my final classes. I then finished up on a Friday afternoon, got in the car, and drove to Memphis, Tennessee from Orlando, Florida, which if you're not familiar, that is a um, not well-worn track. <laughs> it was back roads. It was two lanes. It was long. And so after a very demanding semester, I found myself moving to Memphis, Tennessee, arriving in the early morning hours of Saturday, and then going to work on Monday morning. I was tired. Work started, and then three weeks later, Simrel McDowell Colson made his appearance on the scene. It was exhilarating and exhausting. If I thought I was tired from school, then I met a new level of tired. Child in the home, new city, new job. I was exhausted. Uh, one day, uh, shortly after that, I was given an office at the church. And uh, as the intern at the church, uh, that meant I got the lowest ranking office available. And that was an internal office with no external windows. And there was just enough room for my books, which was substantial, uh, and my desk and a chair. And so during the late afternoon hours, the circulation in that room was particularly poor. And so it would reach a balmy, like right around 81 degrees. And you can imagine in my fatigue what that did to me especially when you're working on the coursework for a particularly boring class. And so one afternoon, in order to get something done, I had to shut my office door because everybody kept dropping by wanting to see pictures of the baby and all this kind of stuff. And so I shut the door, get my pen out, and start working as furiously as I know how on this class. I began fighting off that sleep that can come your way, violently jerking and slobbing all around and trying to keep myself awake. Started pinching myself. I got coffee. I got water. I did everything that I knew possibly how to do. And then, all of a sudden, I am bolted straight awake by someone in my door saying, wake up! And it was my new boss. I don't know how long I'd been asleep. I didn't even know I was asleep. It was awesome, whatever I was doing. I was enjoying it immensely until I hear him say, wake up! He knew my circumstances, but this is similar to what is happening in Corinth. The Apostle Paul is in the doorway. God is in the doorway speaking to this church that is falling asleep. They were falling off into a stupor, and Paul exclaims to them. He barges into their lives, and he says, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. 
He's not speaking here about the sin of drunkenness, but rather he's calling them to wake up from their stupor of which they were denying the resurrection from the dead. And so God addresses a church that's nodding off into cultural compromise. They needed to wake up, but the thing is that the church yesterday and today lives under this threat of slumber in which we go native and we tend to customize the gospel to the moral and intellectual standards of the culture around us. And we do that rather than receiving the traditions that have been handed down to us from the apostles as it's given to us in Scripture. And that was what the Corinthians needed to wake up from. And why we need to hear these words as well today that we need to be awakened. That we need to be reawakened. But what is it that the sleepy and slumbering church needs to hear in order to avoid slipping off into a coma of cultural compromise? What is it that we desperately need to hear? And here in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that one thing is foregrounded for us, and that is that we must keep first things first. That the things of first importance must remain first in the church's life. Paul asked the Corinthians a question in verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And this may be confusing to many of you. You say, hey, how did they become Christians, listen to the Apostle Paul preach, and then quickly begin to alter the faith and change major and central doctrines? It's really quite understandable when you understand the, word of, the world of Greco-Roman philosophy because spirituality was very popular during this day, but spirituality involved a salvation that led you to escape life in the body. It was to be enlightened and to be wise, that the body was seen as the prison house of the soul. And so salvation, whatever form it came in, was to escape the body. And so these notions coming out of the Old Testament and then fulfilled in Jesus about there being a rising of dead corpses, in Corinth this was seen as unsophisticated. This was crass, physical-type religion that really had no place. And if they were to be current and to really impact their city, they needed to alter and reinterpret the resurrection. And so that was what was happening amongst some of the leaders there in Corinth, that they identified with salvation, with an escape from the world, not a reintroduction into it. It was exactly the opposite of the message that Paul preached And this was the provocative message that Paul preached, that God would one day raise the dead just as he had raised Jesus Christ. That Jesus, against all expectations after dying on the cross, got up from the dead. Remember again what he says in verses 3 and 4 from last week. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And for the Apostle Paul, this event of Jesus' resurrection changes everything. That it is the defining moment of history. That it is the moment that has implications for every human being who walks the face of the earth. And that it is to be of first importance 
in the church's teaching and preaching in life. And there's two particular applications that we have to consider for today. The first is that we have to resist all efforts to dismiss or to downplay the resurrection. This has happened on the right and the left inside the church's life in the American culture. But the first example that we see of it is in the mainline Protestant churches. In the early part of the 20th century, there was a concerted effort by ministers that the gospel be made believable to modern men. And so modern men, if they were to believe the gospel, it was supposed that the supernatural elements of the gospel needed to be removed, cut out, and then that Jesus would be believable and the churches would be full. It was seen as unsophisticated, as unpalatable to talk about supernatural things like resurrection. And so what happened is that the resurrection was demythologized. That is to say, they wanted to know what was the kernel of truth behind this fantastic story. And the kernel of truth was this, that the resurrection was a metaphor. It was a metaphor that inside every dark cloud, there's a silver lining. And that's what's important for modern men to know, that inside every dark cloud, God has a silver lining for you. And so you see what happened The resurrection was dismissed, and it was reinterpreted. But unfortunately, the resurrection didn't fare much better on the side of the fundamentalists. While supernatural events were believed and were accepted, the emphasis in the message that was upheld was typically the death of Jesus and the need to believe in Jesus in order to go to heaven when you died. And so what was functionally and practically not emphasized was the resurrection of Jesus. The focus was on his crucifixion and on the soon coming day where you die and then go to, God, go to be with God in heaven. And frequently what happened is the resurrection was confused with the event of your going to heaven. Several years ago, I was invited to, uh, to sit and preside over a funeral, and I was preaching the, the sermon for that funeral at a large Presbyterian church. It was a smaller service, and we met in a small chapel, and one of the elders from the church stood up. It was a distant family member who had died of ALS, and he appropriately said, Patty suffered long and hard, and the room nodded and groaned because her last years were very, very difficult. But then he said, the great news that we can proclaim today is that Patty has now been raised, that she is with Jesus in heaven and she is at peace in her new body. I was sitting on the front row thinking, no, Patty is right there. That's where Patty is. Patty is with the Lord and she is at peace. But friends, there is something essential to affirm that Paul is saying here for the Christian, that the resurrection is not going to heaven. The resurrection is when Jesus returns to the earth and raises the bodies of the dead. That resurrection is not a spiritual event. It is a very physical re-embodiment of your body where your soul and body are brought back together. And so it's not sufficient to just focus on going to heaven, as great as it is. Remember the words of N.T. Wright, that heaven is a big deal, but it's not the end of the world. 
that God's great plan is to raise those who belong to Jesus Christ, to put them back in their bodies, to bring them into a world that's free from sin and all of its corruption and pollution and all of your guilt, it's all destroyed. Remember what he says here. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. For he must reign, in verse 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then what is the last enemy? The last enemy to be put under his feet, to be destroyed, is death. And friends, at that destruction... That is the resurrection from the dead. And so in the church, we have to be careful that the resurrection is not dismissed and reinterpreted, but also that it's not downplayed and forgotten. That for the Apostle Paul in the, in the apostolic gospel that we uphold and that we preach, it is of first importance to have this hope of the glorious new future that God has for creation and for all of His people. That this is essential to your faith. And so we have to resist all of that dismissal and all of that downplay. But the second application is that we have to resist all efforts to displace the resurrection from its central position. And this is where the church has to be so careful. Because the church has many good things that it is involved in. It has many good things that it believes. There are many good things that you involve yourselves in. But what so often happens is that those many good things, we are tempted to then move them into the central position, to be the defining things about the church's life. And here's the issue according to the Apostle Paul, is that we have no permission to do that. We have absolutely zero permission to do that. That it is the things of first importance, the resurrection of the dead, that is to remain central. And so we must be careful because there are certain doctrinal matters coming from the Scriptures that we affirm and believe, but they're of lesser importance. But yet sometimes we vault them to central importance and we emphasize them so much that we're not talking about the main things of the gospel the death and the resurrection of Jesus and all that that means. These can be issues like the spiritual gifts. They can be issues like the millennium and, and when does that start and when does that end. It can be the issues about how God creates the world and how many years ago that was. Friends, these things that Scripture does not speak plainly to are not part of the message of your salvation. In the great Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1, it says, not everything in Scripture is equally plain. But the things that are necessary for salvation are clear and plain. And friends, we don't let those things that are not plain and those things that can be debatable that are not part of the message of salvation, we don't vault those to first importance. It's one way the church struggles with it. We also struggle at times with matters of conviction. Those are things that we feel like we are led to do. And what many then respond when they feel like they are led to do something, that then becomes of first importance. And everybody else should be doing it as well. And so what happens is gradually the Christian life becomes about that central conviction and not the affirmation of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. These can be good things like where you school your children or where you do this or whether you drink alcohol or not. It can be all kinds of things. 
But you see the point, that the first things are to remain first. And then you also have matters of mission. This is like how a church executes its ministry, whether it's small groups or Sunday schools. And you have issues like music and how it's done and and worship and the details that go into that. And oftentimes you have people splitting churches and dividing things over these issues that they say are of central importance. And they're not. They're not the first things. The resurrection is the central doctrine. It is the center and it is the circumference of Christianity. Everything rises and falls, Paul says, on our affirmation of the resurrection, physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul is arguing here in verses 12 through 18 that if that resurrection didn't take place, then your time would be much better well spent at the Jags game, by the beach, or at brunch. But if the resurrection did take place, the Jags will hopefully one day be good, the beach will be there, and you can get brunch on one of the other six days of the week. That if it does happen, it is a central and defining, the central and defining moment of all human history. But if the resurrection is of such central importance, what is it that you miss? What is it exactly that you miss if you leave it behind? And this is how Paul then takes his argument for the remaining portion of our verses. He is demonstrating to the Corinthians what they miss. And there's three things here, three things to observe in verses 17 through 34. The first is that if we forsake the resurrection, we forfeit our security before God. Follow with me in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Notice that earlier in the chapter, he has indicated that it was necessary for Jesus to die for sins, that he had to be crucified for sins. That is absolutely true. But then also for your sins to be forgiven and removed, for you to have a right standing with God, it's not just enough to have a dead Messiah. You also had to have a living Jesus that you believed in and trusted. And then His right standing with God becomes your right standing. And God declares that you're right, not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. This is the way that the Hebrew law court worked. The Jewish system, early in the morning, two people would approach the judge. One would be the accuser, one would be the defendant. And when the Bible talks about the forgiveness of sins, this law court imagery is invoked and used. The accuser is literally the translation for the name of the devil or Satan. And he was the accuser. And when the accuser stands against humanity, human beings who are in Adam, he can claim us. Because we have sinned and defied God, and because God is just and God is right, God allows us to be taken down into death because the accusation is real, the accusation is true, and the accusation holds. But there was one man who stood in the dock, and the accusation came. And Satan claimed Jesus and took him down into death on the cross. But Peter says in Acts 2 that death could not hold him. And do you know why it couldn't hold him? 
because Jesus was the one righteous man. He was the one who didn't do what Adam did. He was the one who didn't do what I have done. He was the one who didn't do what you have done. He was the one who didn't do what we have done. He was the righteous one. And so Satan attempted to claim him, hold him into death, but it could not hold him because he was righteous. And so God evacuates the verdict. God declares that he's innocent. He's justified. He is vindicated in front of all of the world. He was the one who was right. And friends, when we place our faith in Jesus, what happens is that we share in his great victory. That the accusations didn't stick. And now that we are right with God, not because of, of some adding up of, of frequent flyer points in which we can gain God's favor. But no, we are right with God because of Jesus. We have a standing with God only because of Him. We're not condemned. We're justified. We're not rejected. We're accepted. We're not shut out, but we're welcomed in. And we stand there because of Christ and Christ alone. And so Paul argues with us, without the resurrection, without the living Jesus, you're still in your sins. And friends, this is the great, beautiful benefit, one of the many benefits that we receive in the resurrection of Christ, is that we have a right standing with God based on another. But the second thing that we forsake if we leave behind the resurrection is that we forfeit our future. Verses 20 through 28, Paul makes the argument, if you follow in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul uses a metaphor here from the Old Testament. It's the metaphor of the firstfruits. And it was part of the Israelite sacrificial system that at the first fruits of the harvest, the very first part of the harvest was then to be dedicated to God. It was to be offered to Him. We still use this language when we talk about tithes and offerings. That we present to God the very first, the very best that He gives us, and then that sanctifies the whole of what the harvest is for our use. Now, Paul takes the metaphor and he says Jesus Christ is the first fruits. He's the one who has run out ahead. He's the pioneer who's come out of death. But then you can be guaranteed because the pioneer has broken this new ground, because the first fruits has been offered, that the rest of the harvest is going to come as well in God's timing when Christ returns. Friends, this is the shape. This is the determination of our future. And if we lose the resurrection, if we just have a Jesus who relates to us in this life, or we just have a Jesus who whisks us off to heaven to play harps on eternal clouds, you have profoundly missed something. That you've missed the gospel's hope that creation will be healed and restored. That this is a deformed and deficient gospel. And that Paul wants to build inside of us and what God wants to give us in Christ is this robust hope. A hope that is about the overcoming of all of our world's brokenness, all of our world's sadness, all of our world's tragedy. That God intends to undo it all and defeat the final enemy of death. And if we lose the resurrection, we forfeit all of that. 
The final thing, if we forsake the resurrection, that Paul will argue here is that our actions and our present sacrifices are actually meaningless. Follow with me in verses 29 through 34. In 29 through 32, Paul closes his argument by enumerating several things, three things in particular. He says that if Jesus is not up from the dead, then you shouldn't bother doing these things. He mentions being baptized for the dead, making sacrifices for the church, and being persecuted. This one verse about baptism on behalf of the dead, no one in the history of Christianity knows what to do with it. It pops into the Bible here. We never see anything in the church's practice about it beyond this. It is somewhat of a mystery. I just acknowledge that to you. It is one of those things that is less than clear. And so we don't make it of first importance. But then Paul mentions other things in which he dies daily, makes sacrifices for the church, and sacrifices that the church was making for the gospel. And this is the point that he's arguing is that all the things that you do for the sake of Christ, that they are utterly empty. They are absolutely meaningless. All of our actions have no significance if Christ is not up from the dead. When I was a young man, I was talking with a friend about Christianity. He had grown up in the church and professed faith, and he was talking with me about his doubts one day. And he said, well, you know, here's what I figure if all of it really is hocus-pocus and it's not true, then at least I lived a good life. At least I gave myself to good things, even if my beliefs were wrong. And friends, we can be tempted to say things like that. But what Paul says is that's dead wrong. He quotes a pagan philosopher. And he says, let us eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die if Christ has not been raised. That you're a fool to live the way that you're living. You are a fool to send your children like Josh Dickinson across the ocean to serve people in Bundabugio, Uganda. It's foolish if Christ is not raised from the dead. You're a fool to give away your money to advance the kingdom. You're a fool to send money to Cuba to help those who are on the margins of life and don't have basic resources. That you're a fool to give yourselves to protecting the firstborn in Jacksonville. That you're a fool to involve yourself in your church. If Christ is not up from the dead, then Paul's saying, go live a selfish life. Go pursue it with abandon, because that's all you've got. Your life is going to end very shortly, and that'll be the last word about it. But, he's obviously not tracing the logic. If Christ is up from the dead then that is the ground, it is the foundation for the present sacrifices that you make. It's the ground and foundation for all of the actions that you take as a Christian. Because no matter whether the world recognizes it or not, whether anybody even sees it, God will validate it one day. And God will place a crown upon your head. And God will richly welcome you in the world to come. And so the Bible argues that to have a meaningful life, you actually have to have a resurrection from the dead. Flannery O'Connor, in her novel, A Good Man is Hard to Find, one of the characters says this towards the close. Speaking of Jesus, he has thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes 
you've got left the best way that you can. And friends, Paul was willing to let it all hang here on what was of first importance. He wasn't trying to create a spiritual system in which people clean themselves up. He wasn't trying to just help people cope with the difficulties they faced in life. He was offering a hope, a message about Jesus' death and resurrection that overcomes our guilt, that overcomes our death, that overcomes the profound problems that the creation we live in groans under. And if you miss the resurrection, you miss it all. Because, friends, the, me- the resurrection is the message that God is for us in Jesus Christ. And that he's gone down into death to absorb all the evil and all the judgment of our world. And he's received that into his body. But because he was innocent and righteous, he was raised. And us in him now, we are right and free before God. And we have a great and glorious future ahead of us. And so we are filled with hope. Let first things be first. Wake up, Paul says. Wake up to all of this. This is the good news. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would stir us and that you wake us, that we recognize and realize all that you are for us in Jesus Christ and all that he has done and all that's been won in the verdict passed upon him when he was raised from the dead. Draw us in and grant us hope and may we be believing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.